Hola, mi amigos, and welcome to another episode of Bravo Bites. If this particular installment sounds a little bit scripted, it's because it is. This is actually going to be the first five chapters that I'm going to attempt to stumble through of Charlie's book, Chark DM, of how she came to be, how she came to show up at the Casa del Wacos. Actually, the first chapter is written by Charlie. And so anyway, without further ado, here we go. And so it begins. I can barely remember a time that didn't involve the hard plastic interior of this crate. Sure, faint memories of a little girl's birthday party with the, unexpe- with the expected squeals of delight when I was presented remain, but it was only a short time before the cute wore off and was replaced by the reality of caring for a rambunctious puppy. In today's electronic world, many things vie for a child's attention, and unfortunately, in the competition between the living creature and the latest smartphone app, I lost. I found myself being content- confined to the crate with increasing frequency, first for short periods, then as my owner's conscience began to get to sear over for longer sentences until soon I wasn't let out at all. My infrequent meals consisted of a handful of dry kibble occasionally tossed into the floor of my prison, only to mix with my own feces that had begun to fill the confined space as well. In, so- in spite of such meager rations, I continued to grow, as did my frustration and claustrophobia. The arch of my spine was the first to suffer, followed by my hips knees, even my tail, rubbed completely through to the bone from the constant contact with the interior of the crate. My toenails also continued their relentless growth, eventually curling back under and growing back into the pads of my feet. I learned to sleep in my own filth, curling my forepaws under my chest to confirm to my tiny area, but during the day, I would occupy myself by gnawing frenziedly at the inside of my plastic cell in an effort to free myself. Eventually, the combination of crying, scratching, and the stench from inside the box became too much for even the foul mistress of the house, and on a cold night in January, I felt my crate being hoisted in the backseat of a creaky small sedan, smelling of stale cigarette butts and desperation. Even at that, the hum of the four-cylinder engine and the warmth of the heater lulled me to sleep until suddenly I felt the car veer off of the pavement and onto the marshy earth. The rear door was yanked open, and the light and the dome light illuminated a small weedy area. Before I could think to protest, the crate was slid from the back seat to land with a squishy thud on the soggy ground, then footsteps retreating hurriedly towards the idling car. The wheels began to spin in the soft mud, but just as I thought my former captors were they themselves going to be trapped in the inky darkness with me, the car lurched backwards to find purchase on the pavement. My howls of anguish chased the retreating sedan as I watched the taillights quickly grow closer together and they became as one and then disappeared entirely. Alone. But not truly alone, as I always had a friend, a friend named Hope. Hope had a very small, quiet voice that would increase in volume and intensity whenever we would hear an occasional vehicle approach, only to grow quiet again when the car would not slow or stop. Quieter every day as my strength began to fail, but never totally silent. Hope was eventually joined by a new but unlikely friend, Procrastination. Procrastination whispered, put off giving up just one more second. That second became minutes, minutes became hours, hours became days, until one of those days I heard a different sound approaching. 
It was two motorcycles, but unlike motorcycles that had passed before, these had a civilized howl, unlike the dull, th- unlike, instead of a dull, dull, thumping roar. Hope immediately raised her voice, only to be quieted again as the bikes flew by and disappeared around the next curve. Was this my fate? A slow death by starvation? To die as I had once lived, confined, marginalized, unwanted, and alone? Even then, in the darkest hours of despair, I knew this to be untrue, as I had a third friend in that crate, Faith. Faith didn't have a voice, but it still spoke to me through an intangible feeling, a feeling that was surely something that something else was surely out there, that surely I wasn't worthless, but I had a purpose in some vague master plan. Even though I felt that I had truly reached the end of my rope, I had no choice but to tie a, note, a knot and hang on. Just one more day. Chapter 2. Dad. Life Flight. Two days after Thanksgiving, I lay dying in the vastness of the Ouachita Mountains. My son Zach and I had been camping and riding our Suzuki DR650 motorcycles across the wilderness, both weighed down with our gear like a pair of gypsy, gypsy vagabonds. One particular section of trail was so enticing that I just had to go back and ride it again, while Zach wisely waited at the bottom of the hill for my return, and then we could tr- continue our trip west. Crossing this trail were what we call water bars, small dirt berms that cross the trail whose purpose is to divert water runoff and prevent erosion and excessive rutting. These ridges of earth are also serve as excellent ramps for an overly rambunctious middle-aged man to catch a little air. Just like an airplane, liftoff is important, but a safe landing is vital, and when I touched down, my bike was wrenched to the left, and I was lofted to the right. A body in motion tends to remain in motion until acted upon by an outside force. In this case, a recently sawn hardwood stump roughly the size of a gallon paint can. It impacted me, or I it, to be more accurate, on my left lower abdomen knocking the wind out of me. After a brief, after a brief period of reflection in which I pondered the error of my ways, I rolled off of the stump to attempt to catch my breath. Nothing seemed to be overly amiss, no broken bones. The bike seemed to be just fine, languishing on her side in a state of repose as I stood her back up, got myself squared away, and continued down the hill to meet Zach. Little did I know that I had ruptured my colon, and the remnants of Thanksgiving dinner were turning my abdominal cavity into a septic soup pot. So we rode on for hours when suddenly the pain began to build like someone someone was twisting a red-hot bayonet in my gut. I eventually had to stop, as any movement at all, let alone the bouncing through the woods on a motorcycle, was excruciating beyond words. We had no cell coverage to call for help, and the GPS showed the nearest assistance to be miles away in the little town of Mena, Arkansas. We had no other option. Zach's job was to navigate through the wilderness to somehow find help. Mine was to somehow stay alive. Words cannot describe the feeling of watching my son's taillight vanish into the trees and fully realizing this could be the last time I would see him, or anyone for that matter. At the same time, I felt a certain peace. I knew that this wasn't his first encounter with adversity, and if anybody could complete the mission, Zach could. I slid to the ground, and the world went away. I think he's drunk. A group of riders had found me laying alone in the ground and assumed the obvious. Although I could barely speak through the pain, I explained the situation. One of the riders just happened to be an ER nurse who recognized the symptoms and leaped into action. She immediately stripped everyone in her party of their jackets and coveralls, piling them on me and then getting into the pile herself. 
using her body heat to keep me from going into shock. I have no idea how long I faded in and out of consciousness when suddenly I saw a blue glove's hand appear before my face, its owner snapping its fingers and saying, stay with us. Zach had found help, a forest ranger many miles away. The ranger called in a helicopter, and the next thing I remember is waking up buck naked on the operating table, bright lights and a team of mass surgeons peering into my face, then oblivion. Then pain of another sort, as strangers levered me up from one bed into another, and I finally began to realize my condition. It seemed I had hoses and tubes coming out of every hole I have, and somehow one had even went to the trouble to provide me with a few extra ones. That's when I saw the biggie, the so-called elephant in the room. The colostomy bag. I was not pleased. Seven days and countless indignities later, they sent me home. As Joanne, as Joanne, henceforth known as mom, will attest, I am not a good patient, and I don't have any idea how I would have made it without her. My incision needed repacking three times a day, and then there was the issue of my constant new companion, the shiny plastic, ba- plastic bag fastened remora-like to my side. It was not a good time to be a resident at the Casa del Wacos. Depression became an issue. I mean, I felt like a semi-human pest dispenser, but instead of delicious candy treats, I was birthing cute little turds out of a hole in my side. I dropped another 10 pounds in addition to the 20 I had already lost in the hospital. As you find, you're a lot more careful about having that second business when you that second business biscuit when you know that you'll be seeing it again up close and personal in the not so distant future. It was during this time that Zach came over and we decided to take a little two-wheel Prozac. I had two Honda motorcycles in the garage at the time, a 1989 Honda CB1 and a newer CB500X. Even though it was a nasty, rainy day in January, Zach and I geared up against the weather and any sane council and went for a little ride. It was a ride that would change everything. Chapter 3. Charlie. No easy way out. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Hey, what is that sound? Sound like those two motorcycles that passed a while ago, but this time they're slowing. Now they're stopping. But why? Not that it matters. There's nothing could be worse torture than utter confinement and neglect. If they would just release me from my crate, I'm sure that I could somehow make it on my own. Footsteps approaching, the black gumbo sucking at the black boots. The latches rattle, and suddenly the metal door on my crate swings open. Hands reach out, and I recoil, but these hands are different from those I had infrequently encountered in the past. These hands somehow knew how to touch a dog, not overly delicate, but also respective of my weakened condition. There were four of these hands, belonging to two humans dressed alike in what I will learn later to be motorcycle gear. They conversed for a short time in a strained language, one that I would give anything to understand, then mounted up on their motorcycles and roared off to the south. Before I had time to grow truly concerned, they returned with a bag of dog food. Evidently, they weren't as friendly as I'd initially thought, as they were extremely miserly with their newfound bounty. The stingy knuckleheads would only let me have a few tidbits at a time when I was fully prepared to dive headfirst into the bag. Then they did something that truly shook any remaining faith I might have it had in humanity. They closed the bag, loaded it up on the larger of the two bikes, and once again sped away. True, they did leave me free of my crate as I had initially hoped. They had also caused Hope to once again raise her voice, only to just as quickly silence it, this time possibly for good. 
Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, and though I was free of my crate, I saw no alternative than to return to it. Although it was evil, it was an evil I knew and understood. I'd been physically freed, but mentally and spiritually I hadn't been shown a better path, so I took the easy route and sought once again the crate's foul but familiar confines. As it was of my own free will this time, it was for good or bad, according to one's perspective. Or so I thought. Dad. The crate. Zach and I carved a path through the rural river bottoms, the twin exhaust notes of the two motorcycles echoing back at us through the the dense fog. At one point, we saw four forms through the shifting mist, hunters dressed in high-vis orange and carrying shotguns, evidently walking out a field in hopes of flushing out rabbits. A short time later, we saw a dog crate at a small small pull-off area, and as we passed, could see a black dog inside. My initial impression was the dog was somehow connected to the hunters, and so we continued on our way. When we reached the intersection where we usually turn back towards home, something told me to make a second pass back to that crate. This time we got the full picture. A a full-sized grown dog reduced to a scabby skeleton, somehow reminiscent of an old photograph of a survivor of a Nazi death camp. No words were exchanged, none were needed. We immediately headed to breakneck speed for the nearest source of food, a family dollar store some many miles away in Wrightsville, Arkansas. We returned with a bag of gravy trained to find the dog still by the crate, so we began feeding her a bit at a time at a pace with which she was obviously not happy. So now what? Even under the best of conditions, I wasn't prepared to carry an adult dog on a motorcycle, and these definitely weren't the best of conditions. She was so frail that it looked like she would break in half if I tried to pick her up, and I was also still getting acquainted with my other passenger, passenger Rollo Ramora, the colostomy bag. We had no choice but to leave her and head home to get Zach's truck, hoping against hope that she would still be alive when we returned. That's how bad she was. Then things went pear-shaped. The 1989 CB1, being an older bike without a fuel gauge, ran out of gas, prompting a delay in search of a gas can, then gas, then returned the gas can to its rightful owner, which made what should have been an hour-long round trip to a three-hour ordeal. When we eventually arrived back, to the, back at the crate, there was no sign of the dog. As I walked closer, my heart sank as I saw her lifeless form in the weeds beside the crate, and I knew that we were too late. As I stopped to consider what to do next, I heard a sound that could only have been welcome under any circumstances, a quiet but distinct growl. I remember thinking, if you have enough strength to growl, then you have enough strength to live. And Zach and I got her up and moving. Zach put some food in the back floorboard of his Nissan pickup, and and when the dog reached in to eat, I lifted her back legs and hoisted her into the truck, and we headed home to the Casa del Wacos. To say that that trip was aromatic was the understatement of the century, as the dog actually smelled like death warmed over. As mentioned, it was a frigid day, and the combination of dog funk, enclosed area, and heater set on high combined to create an unholy miasma, not unlike that of the devil's armpit. We started calling her CB, or Charlie Bravo, since we had been riding Honda CB motorcycles when we found her, and the name stuck. By the time we reached home, it already, she had already began attaining celebrity status as Zach's fiance Tara, was waiting on our arrival, as was Mom and Alex. Then it seemed like every motorcycle friend I have showed up to pay respects to this wretched wreck of a dog. As joyful as the occasion was, I couldn't help thinking to myself that we weren't out of the woods yet. 
still, she still had a long road to recovery. But there is always hope. Charlie, a new day. What's up with this? I've seen more people today than I've seen in my entire life. Although highly unusual, I must admit the level of attention is more than a little intoxicating. But I'm so weak I can only take it in small doses. The one they call mom has no qualms about leaping into action and has noticed that I'm having difficulty walking due to the condition of my feet. She's decided to perform an emergency pedicure. Like most dogs, I'm not a fan of my feet being messed with, but I'm really just too weak and tired to care. The warmth of a blanket coupled with a hypnotic hiss of propane heater lulls me into a state of semi-consciousness and the world faded away. I awoke in the middle of the night to realize that I was once again in an enclosed area, but this one was very unlike my crate. It was full of intoxicating smells, not just other dogs, but also the pungent odors of gasoline, WD-40, chain lube, and other chemical smells. Although it was dark, there was enough moonlight streaming through the window to illuminate the outlines of the motorcycles and the shape of the human they call Zack in a small sleeping bag on the cot beside me. Easy does it. His bed looks comfier than mine. So I eased up there with him, and that is where they stayed for the rest of the night, even long after my extreme state of funkalicious had driven him back into the house. I think that it was that first night at the Casa del Wacos that cemented my habit of commandeering any sleeping situation I find myself involved with, a habit that conf- continues to this very day. Mom, leave that dog alone. At least give her some time to get acclimated. This was Dad. As usual, Mom ignored him and continued upon her self-appointed mission of cleansing the funk from my person. She and Alex gave me the full spa treatment, lather, rinse, repeat, until the filth from my body was circling the drain like some sort of foul whirlpool. After the bath, after the bath, not the bath, after the bath, more wonder was to appear, this time in the form of a gruel consisting of puppy chow, evaporated milk, and raw eggs that Mom whipped up in a blender. After a bit of this otherworldly delight, I clicked my way into the living room to find Dad sprawled out on the couch watching football with Zach. If the furniture was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. So I then completed the next stage of my eventual takeover as benevolent dictator of the Queen of the Casa. Like the cot, the furniture was mine as well. I eventually introduced myself to the other inmates of the and future compatriots in our bid for world dominance. Echo, the perpetually guilty Doberman, two mouthy Finnish spits named Mia and Angel, and a dignified but slightly rumpled older gentleman named Maximilian. They gave me a full debriefing on the tactical situation that follows. Although Mom was not to be trifled with, Dad was a complete pushover, and Zach and Alex would be used as allies as well. Any attempt to attain hierarchy at the Casa was to be first decided by establishing territory on the bed, which would then extend through the rest of the house. This is when I began to formulate my plan for global dominance. First the bed, then the casa, then Arkansas, my influence spreading insidiously across the globe until it would be too late for any other usurper to rise and challenge my legitimate claim to the title of Charlemagne Bravissimo. Until then, I must be patient and contemplate this while I nibble my butt.